Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing today, church? Good. Happy Father's Day. All those fathers out there, it's a big day. A fun day, hopefully, for everybody involved. I'll tell you, so far today, uh, I'll just be honest with you, moment of transparency, it's been a little rough, all right? <laughs> so please be patient with us, the technology, keys, the whole thing. You know, I don't know who agreed to let Trevor go on vacation, but we got to discuss that, um, honestly. You know, Father's Day, what a, what a big deal, right? I mean, when I think about my dad's role in my life, um, you know, there's many, many things that I look at to him for as an example. Um, I think specifically about my mom. She became ill when I was very young. When I was in junior high, she had a first brain aneurysm. And for the next almost 40 years, he cared for her until she passed away about three years ago. And that demonstration of love that he had and the role, the steps he had to take as a father to uh, carry uh, a lot of the burden, while my mom was most of the time out of it, was uh, quite inspiring to say the least. Um, you know, I come from a, a mid-sized family. I have uh, two sisters. I'm sandwiched in the middle. Karen, she's four years older than me. Um, she's the typical bossy older sister, right? And then I have Jen, my, my younger sister. She's four years younger than me, and she's the one that's more soft, kind of fly by night, you know, just a, a typical baby, if you will. And I'm, I'm sandwiched in the middle. Does anybody appreciate birth order? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. You, you probably don't know it, but you probably understand birth order, even if you haven't read about it. Um, you know, my wife likes to say that I have the perfect birth order. I'm lying right now. She thinks that I think I have the perfect birth order, being the middle child but the oldest male. So with that, being the middle child, right, being able to compromise, get along, we do very well at that. Being the only male, I can be very bossy, right? And that is, that is the truth. Um, but it, it's really cool just to see the family dynamics, especially with larger families and how people interact with one another. Um, you know, back in 1995, I became a dad for the first time. My oldest daughter, Faith, was born. That's a whole nother series, um, again, that I think I've shared before, but if you don't know it, it it's quite a, an awe-inspiring story of God's work in my life. Um, and then again, in 98, my, my youngest daughter, uh, Hope, was born. And in the last three years, I got three grandbabies. If you want to see pictures, I'll be showing them after the service. Uh, glad to do so. Um, but wow, what a privilege to be a dad and now to be a poppy. Um, I'll be honest with you, it's the hardest job hands down I've ever done. And I've done some significant things in my life. Being a dad is the hardest thing I've ever done. It's also been the most rewarding. And now as a poppy, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Um, it's really, really cool. And so today, just make sure you, you celebrate your dad, celebrate um, who he is and what he does. None of us are perfect. Well, there's only one perfect dad in this world, and that's our Heavenly Father, but uh, he's definitely worth celebrating. Um, so today, we're going to talk about some other family dynamics, and specifically a family that Jesus himself was very close to. Um, and it's a story that I think just about every single person in here will be familiar with. It's the story of Lazarus, right, and his sisters. And so today, um, we're going to walk through that. There's a lot of verses. We're going to get through an entire chapter today. So I won't cover every aspect of, of what we're going to read today, but I'm going to hit what I feel, what God has been leaning on me um, in terms of what I can share this morning. So let's, first thing, 
Again, it's been a crazy morning. Let's bow our heads. I know I could use it um, and all of us just to have a listening ear to what the Father has to teach us today. So bow with me. Heavenly Father, I just, I just want to put the next 40 minutes before you, Lord. Your hand has already been in every aspect since we all got out of, out of bed this morning. You are in control, Father. You are the Father that sets the perfect example for all of us. You love us, you care for us, and you want to teach us. So, Lord, use my words in these next few moments to be able to teach your desire through your word. We just love you and appreciate you so very much. In your son's beautiful name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're going to pick up with John starting in chapter 11. We're entering the second half of the Gospel of John, right? Trevor talked about that last week. and What a great job he did, didn't he? I mean, for the first time, wow, uh, quite impressive. But I want to give you a little bit of background before we get um, rolling along so you can just understand what's been going on here. So, so, so far in the book of John, there's been six miracles that Jesus has performed, okay? So just a quick review. He turned water into wine in John chapter 2. In chapter 4, he healed the official son. Then he healed the paralytic man at Bethesda in John chapter 5. In John chapter 6, he fed the 5,000 and walked on water. That was a busy chapter. And then uh, John chapter 9, he healed the blind man. But now we're going to kick it up a notch, right? We're going to be reading about Lazarus and Jesus overturning death. This miracle is very special in a couple of ways. One, Jesus and Lazarus had a close relationship. It, it spells it out right there in what we're getting ready to read. So this was very personal for him, right? Um, so that makes it special. The other thing is it's a precursor to Jesus' own death and resurrection. We're, we're rapidly approaching that time when Jesus himself will be placed on the cross. And this is just an example uh, of the power that he had. So as we walk through the story, we're going to walk through the story of Lazarus from the aspect of his family, specifically his two sisters, but realize the main purpose of this story is to point to Jesus as the one and only Messiah, not only for the Jews, but for all believers. So as we read through this, be reminded of that. So open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1, and it opens with Lazarus's illness. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So let's, let's review the setting here, okay, right? It's taken time taking place in the town of Bethany near Jerusalem. It's only about two miles away, kind of a suburb, if you will. And there's three main characters, all right? Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. So Lazarus is the brother, right? And actually, as you go through the story, you'll come to find out he's actually kind of a minor character here, all right? He's most likely the primary caretaker or breadwinner of the family. There's no discussion of parents. There's nobody else and no other brothers are mentioned. So that's a presumption, but I think it's something that, that we can make um, with some confidence. Um, and one thing we do know for sure, though, he is a very close friend of Jesus, for it says that Jesus loved him. Now, Martha, 
Martha is the same Martha we read about in Luke chapter 10. So I want to read that here quickly to provide a bit of background into who exactly she was. Okay, so Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So some things that we can take from this, right? Martha invited the disciples and Jesus into her home. So it speaks to her having a large enough home to at least fit 13 other people. And my, another presumption is there's probably a few other folks in, the, in that entourage as well. But at the very least, it, it was a, at least a decent sized home to fit that, which speaks to maybe her having a little bit of wealth as well. Now, I find it funny that in this sisterly spat, um, Martha tries to pull Jesus in when she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. She presumes that Jesus is on her side in this, right? That she is righteous and correct in her assumption. Typical older sister, right? Any amens? Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say, though, she's a doer, right? She is not afraid to do what is right. See, she invited Jesus and the disciples into her home at a time when Jesus was identified as a troublemaker, yet she wasn't afraid to be associated with him. But So I'm going to classify her, if you will, in the birth order, probably, if not the oldest, she's probably the oldest sister, right? Very similar tendencies. So let's move on to Mary, okay? Now, Mary, I'm going to classify as a typical young typical younger sister. She's more concerned with the relationships than the tasks. She's emotionally driven, but that's not a bad thing, right? Now, the author of John identifies Mary by speaking of her anointing of Jesus with ointment and wiping his feet with her hair. Now, realize, as far as the chronological order, this actually hasn't happened yet. Paul's going to speak to this next week, okay? But the people reading this gospel for the first time were familiar enough with the story. So when John puts together the context of what's happening here, people can identify and go, oh, I've heard of that Mary, or I know that Mary, right? So that's what's going on here. <clears throat> it's clear, too, that the story of Mary accomplishing the very beautiful thing that she's going to do in chapter 12 of, of anointing Jesus um, was done because of what we're going to read about today. It, it's, it's very, very cool. And if you think about it in the context of her brother Lazarus being brought back from the dead, it's a moving story of love and appreciation that she has for Jesus. But I'm not going to steal any more of Paul's thunder. I'll let him be able to knock that out of the park next week. So those are the main characters, right? This is the story of a family going through a crisis. Lazarus is ill, clearly serious illness, right? So they've sent for Jesus. Why? Because they... They know Jesus, right? They're in relationship with him. Mary and Martha think, well, if anybody can fix this, Jesus can. He's healed other people. Why wouldn't he heal Lazarus? It's the one whom he loves, correct? So that's what their sister's plans were. 
but that wasn't the Lord's plans. That was not what Jesus had in mind. His plan was to bring glory to God. Hence, verse 4, when Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. All right? So don't forget that. We're going to pick up in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Are you confused? Confused by Jesus' reaction, right? Clearly, Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, yet he stayed two more days. He did not rush off. Where is the sense of urgency? Where is the desire to see Lazarus healed? Clearly, Lazarus meant a lot to Jesus, yet he delayed. Imagine if Martha had understood that Jesus was delaying. How do you think she would have responded to that? Probably not very well. But remember, Jesus had bigger plans in store, right? A plan to glorify his Father in ways that no one could imagine. I want to ask you, you know, here's a family in crisis, clearly going through a difficult time. I'm pretty confident that every single person in here at one point or another has gone through some crisis, some event that caused you to go, Lord, fix this, right? How often do we actually go, Lord, how are you going to use this to bring glory to you? Right? I mean, that, that's a tough question. We're going to talk more about that here coming up. Now, clearly, though, the disciples were confused as well, right? They were facing their own crisis, if you will. They had no desire to go back to Judea. They knew that the Jews were looking to stone Jesus, and quite possibly, they too could face the same outcome, that being death. Now, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, responded with a bit of a parable. He said in verse 9, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Leave it to Jesus to make something a little bit more complex, right? So who's ever walked in the night? I mean, truly in the night, no peripheral light, no flashlight, no cell phone glow that you can use to, to light up your way, right? It, it is dark. And if you add like an overcast or rain, I mean, you can barely see your own feet. It's very easy to stumble. The, the, the story that Jesus is using here is very, very appropriate because we are incredibly lost without the light. But you got to understand the context in which Jesus was talking about the light here as well. Now, there's a reference going back to John chapter 9 where Jesus healed the blind man. So I'm going to read a few verses. This isn't on screen, but I want you to listen so we can help understand exactly what Jesus was talking about here. In John chapter 9, verse 1, he says, As he passed by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now listen, here's the important piece. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So when Jesus is referring to daylight, he's referring to the time that he has during his ministry here on earth. If you go back to chapter 11, the 12 hours of daylight, this is the daylight that annotates that he has limited time here to do what the Father has called him to do. And during this time, he must focus on accomplishing the task that his Father has assigned to him while he was there regardless of the risk involved with the threats from the Jews. He's confident that he will be successful in his ministry because he's walking in the light of his Father. He further explains that this pertains to us as well and that we don't walk, if we don't walk in that same light, being the light, his light, the Son of God's light, that we too will stumble. So let's pick up in verse 11. The disciples are still struggling to understand Jesus' purpose in all of this, right? It says, After these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus says Lazarus has fallen asleep, he's using a common New Testament reference to someone dying in those times. Yet the disciples didn't get it, right? I, I can't help but believe they were still emotionally affected by the crisis that they viewed was going on. If we go there, God, we're going to die, and you're going to die, and this will not turn out well, right? They knew the reference to sleeping was, was death, but yet they still weren't grasping it in their own minds. So Jesus has to get more direct when he says, Lazarus has died. But then he goes on to explain the purpose in all of this so that you may believe. Clearly stating that there is a higher purpose to this crisis that the family is going through. Now Thomas, you might know him as another name, Doubting Thomas is some of the, one of the names we use for him today because of the way he responded to the resurrected Christ. He's willing to go with him, even if it means that they will die. Now some may read sarcasm in his response, um, but I think when you actually put in context of the different times Thomas is referred to in the scripture. I think it was an earnest response to go, okay, Lord, if you're going to go and you're going to die, then we're going to die with you. I think that was his heartfelt response. But we're going to move on to when Jesus meets up with Martha, okay? Remember the older sister. Verse 17, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, a long time clearly indicating that there was no doubt he was dead. But what a beautiful interaction between Martha and Jesus. Can't you hear the humanness of the situation, her desperation, her hurt, her pain? But look at what Martha did. When she heard that Jesus was coming, she took action and went to meet Jesus on the way. I can't help but think those emotions were what were, was driving her to respond in this way. You know, some could say, well, she was being passive-aggressive when she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, right? I, I get that. I, I kind of understand. Lord, if you had been here, we wouldn't be experiencing this pain right now. We wouldn't be going through this trial. We'd, we would have been able to sail through this because you could have healed him like that. She didn't grasp what was getting ready to happen, though. She also recognized, though, that Jesus has the ability to change this situation, even though Lazarus is dead. There's still some inkling of belief within her. Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. This is a true statement, right? That Martha does not fully grasp. She thinks she understands when she responds with what will happen on the day of resurrection and understanding that she had been uh, taught by the Pharisees. But however, she did not get what Jesus was about to do in those moments. Now, Jesus makes it very clear in his response to her who he is and what he is capable of doing. In verse 25, he uses the term, I am. This is the fifth time, and it's very intentional that he uses those words. And it references the name of God going back to Moses meeting with God in the wilderness. But additionally, he makes three very strong statements so that there's no doubt as to who he is. One, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, Shall, not, shall have eternal life, and they shall never die. Not their earthly bodies, but their eternal glorified bodies. Then he looks at Martha and directly and clearly asks her, do you believe this? Her response, yes, Lord. Now I have to ask the question, in her belief, did she fully grasp what Jesus was about to do? I doubt it. She had the knowledge, but there's a whole different level when it comes to having the understanding of that knowledge and what Jesus was about to do, right? How often do we say that we believe yet still fail to fully grasp what God is about to do in the midst of our crises? It can be a very challenging uh, issue for sure. But then comes Mary. Picking up in verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
now view this as that younger sister who's more concerned about the relationships. When Martha told her that Jesus was coming, what did she do? She rose quickly and went to Jesus, falling at his feet and saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Those are the exact same words her sister used when she met Jesus, when Martha met Jesus. What an emotional, heartfelt response. Falling at his feet, saying those same words, yet she too did not grasp what Jesus was about to do. She's clearly in despair over the loss of her brother. And who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be? But Jesus' response, picking up in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now in reading these verses, it'd be real easy to just skip over and, and, and kind of just go, oh yeah, Jesus was upset because Lazarus had died, right? That, that's a very normal response, I think. But he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Over what? What was causing him to feel that way? You know, it's easy to think that he was being emotional over his fr- the loss of his friend Lazarus. He loved him. He cared about him. But that doesn't make any sense, right? Because he knows what he's about to do. Remember back in the beginning of the chapter, he stated this illness is so that the Son of God may be glorified. And then he waited two days so that the moment would be right. Now, it's clear that Jesus is impacted emotionally and is stated troubled by what he is experiencing. But again, why? What is causing him to feel this way? So what you need to do is go back to the original Greek. In the original Greek, the words deeply moved is translated from the word, and I'm going to mess this up because I'm not a Greek scholar, but I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to, announce, to pronounce it correctly. Embromyo. Embromio my. <laughs> Sorry about that. But this is what's important. It's a rare word used only seven times in the New Testament. Strong's defines it this way. And listen to these words. It says, to have indignation on, to blame, or to sigh with chagrin. So this is not a tearful, heartbroken type of response you would typically expect from someone who's seeing the death of a loved one. This is more of a feeling of frustration or disappointment. So that again begs the question, frustration towards what or who? Is it frustration over being too late to save Lazarus? Doubtful, right? Is it frustration over the consequence of sin, that being death? Okay, I can get behind that as sin grieves our heavenly father, right? Or is it frustration in the unbelief of Mary? Now, she was weeping just like the Jews, but she knew Jesus. Most likely, she had seen his miracles and heard his teachings, yet she still grieved the same as an unbeliever. As an unbeliever. In all likelihood, this is the reason for his frustration, and justifiably so, when he had proven time and again who he was. Now, in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. This, too, is easy to brush over without fully understanding what was going on here. 
So again, we need to go to the original Greek to understand what is meant. So we're going to look at a few different versions of weeping. Now, referencing Mary and the Jews, the Greek word used for their weeping is kleo, used in the context of weeping and wailing, a strong, deep, emotional crying out in grief. I think that's very understandable, right? Someone who has lost someone that's dear to them, it's understandable, the grief process that's going on. This is also the same word used to describe the other time when Jesus cried in Luke chapter 19 when he wept over Jerusalem and its impending judgment. However, the Greek word used for Jesus weeping in John chapter 11 is dekrio, which has a very different meaning. Dekrio means to weep silently with tears. So this is not the same weeping and wailing as Mary and the Jews, who had a feeling of desperation and loss. But Jesus was more weeping of sadness. Now, it's easy to understand how Mary responding in this way was frustrating, but also disappointing for Jesus. It makes the story of Mary's anointing of Jesus even more powerful. And I'm excited to hear that next week. But then look at how Jesus responded as well. Quite simply, where have you laid him? I can't help but, but think when he said those words that he's showing a determination to prove to them yet again exactly who he is. So picking up in verse 38, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, to me, as I read this, I can't help but think that Jesus is clearly frustrated by the unbelief and lack of understanding amongst those who he has spent so much time with. Martha, the other ever practical firstborn, right? She's still demonstrating doubt as Jesus instructs them to open the tomb. She was concerned about the odor. Now think about this. I don't want to be too morbid, but she just lost her brother. Four days have gone by. No refrigeration, no protection. I mean, I think we've all at some points come across a dead animal. It's not exactly pleasant. And here, She's getting ready to possibly, what she believes, to, to have that odor of her own brother decaying in her nostrils. A little concerning, right? I would be concerned, for sure, without a doubt. Who could blame her for feeling that way? But Jesus' response is, again, direct and to the point. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now realize, if you go back, there's no conversation that we have in writing that states that he told her that previously. But I think it's, it's pretty easy to presume that that conversation had actually occurred. So in verse 41, it says, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
Now Jesus prayed openly, lifting his eyes to his heavenly Father, knowing with all confidence that God would answer his prayer, right? He's doing this so that all those around would know that he was indeed God's son, the Messiah, and most importantly, to bring glory to God. This is the purpose of the entire crisis scenario. Now imagine Mary and Martha, the stone is removed. They're concerned about the smell, at least Martha is. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. I'm sure it didn't happen like that. Those seconds must have seemed like hours. They've been deeply grieving over the loss of their brother. They thought all hope was lost. The anticipation. You wonder if the tears stopped. You wonder, I'm betting you could hear a pin drop. I don't know if you can hear that in like gravel and sand, but right? You just wonder what was going through those minds in the moments. Notice when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, he's very specific. Again, I'm presuming, but I'm guessing Lazarus wasn't born in a solo location. There's probably a cemetery. What if Jesus had just said, come out? Could have been quite the party that day, right? (laughs) But the anticipation of Mary and Martha, I can only imagine. So then in verse 44, it says, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with the linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What a glorious sight. That weeping and wailing, did it turn to hooting and hollering or stunned silence? Tears of joy from tears of sadness. I mean, This had never occurred before. And to me, it's just a precursor again of Jesus' resurrection and what that means for us as Christ followers. So in verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. I think that's a tremendous understatement, right? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest of the year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples." Now, the Jewish leaders were very concerned about what Jesus had done, right? They were concerned and afraid because Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave that the Romans then in turn would be concerned that they, there was going to be an overthrow of their um, reign, right? They were afraid of an uprising, which would in turn 
result in them cracking down on the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders, removing them from their position in society. And this was enough for them, even though Jesus had just raised a man from the dead to pursue his execution. It is so cool to me that Caiaphas prophesied when he said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You know, it just goes to show truth, even if it's spoken from the word of a fool, or in this case, a lost man, is still truth. You know, I've known this story since I was a child. It is a powerful, powerful story, a story of a family in a time of crisis, a story of pain and sorrow, yet great joy. My hope today is that through this story, you can see that God can take the greatest hurt, the biggest crisis, and use it to bring glory. Not self-glory, not glory for us, but glory to the one and only true God. That is what our story is to be about, right? You know, there's no doubt, not a doubt in my mind, that life is hard. Some days it seems like it's impossible to get through. I know for, uh, for me, myself specifically, my mom's illness, um, in my marriage at a point where it was clearly broken, multiple miscarriages, almost having my wife pass away with the birth of our first daughter. I'm not unique in that. We all go through these things. It's a given. It's just a matter of when, not if. But the cool thing is God has educated me taught me and brought me up, and I've spent more time with him. I've come to the point when I enter a crisis situation that I can truly go to him and go, okay, God, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand. This hurts. This is incredibly painful. It's not something I want to be doing, but I trust you, and I know that eventually... It's going to be for your glory. And we're going to be able to use it in a way to minister to others. When I look back in hindsight, I can see that time and time and time again, where every one of those trials that he brought me through now, I have as an opportunity, a blessing to share with others and to help them as they go through a very difficult time. So when you read the story of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, I want you to be encouraged. This is an amazing story, an amazing miracle, and you place it in the context of the hope we have in him. It's like a sneak peek, a prequel, if you will, of what's getting ready to happen. So if you're going through a crisis today, have hope. Turn to him. Lean on him and wait expectantly for how God will use your current circumstances to bring glory to him. And as I said, this is not him being self-centered or selfish. It's based on the fact that in this broken world, the only one worth receiving glory is our Father in heaven. And in a time of crisis, will be a time for glory and hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for yet again showing us through your word how much you love 
and care for us. How much you want us to grow and not remain who we are, Lord. That you can teach us through words that were written 2,000 years ago. And they can be an opportunity for us to see just how much you care about our lives, Lord. We just want to be able to walk forward with hope and encouragement, knowing that we are loved and cared for by you. We too, Lord, love and appreciate all that you do in our lives. In your son's beautiful name we pray. Amen.